Well, good morning. We are in for a real treat uh, this morning. We, we thought, what would be a great way to wrap up uh, Ray's sabbatical? Uh, and, you know, we've had some great speakers over the course of this time. We've had the staff has had great opportunities to teach. We thought, wouldn't it be great if one of our elders would want to share out of God's word on a Sunday morning? And so we asked the elders, and of course, immediately they all said instantaneously, yes. No, they did not. Uh, but one elder in particular said, I really sense God giving me something to share. And so Tim Henry is going to come this morning and open up God's word. Tim is a great guy. He is a good friend. He is um, the husband to Rebecca and the father of two beautiful children. And he is going to come and share with you this morning. So will you welcome him uh, to the stage this morning? Thanks. Thanks, Dave. That was very kind. Um, I've heard it said that 80% of success is just showing up. I'm here, and I can tell you that that saying does not feel very true right now. This is my first time um, preaching in front of a church, so please bear with me. I am actually pretty nervous. Dave mentioned my kids, and my oldest is named Millie. She's three years old, and I love her to death. And she's a unique little kid. She has a she has her own unique qualities about her. She's very sweet, and she loves to dance. And she'll come up to me and she'll say, Daddy, Daddy, come dance with me. And how can you ever say no to that as a dad to your three-year-old daughter? So I'll go dance, and she loves the Beauty and the Beast soundtrack. She's seen the movie. She loves the music. Beauty and the Beast is on all the time in our house. Yet we go to dance, and my daughter Millie knows how to turn on the music, and of all the great songs you could turn on on the Beauty and the Beast soundtrack, she insists that we go to the mob song. I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, Beauty and the Beast soundtrack, but the mob song is just what it sounds like. It's an angry mob with their torches and weapons, stomping and chanting, kill the beast, and they're going off to the castle to storm it. <laughs> and my sweet daughter, with her glowing face, looks up at me and is like, let's dance, let's dance. And... That's, that's just one of the oddities about her. And every once in a while, my daughter Millie, and maybe by complete accident, she'll just say something that strikes you as really profound. The other day, she looked up at my wife, Rebecca, and she asked, Mommy, what do I not know? I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know how you answer that question for a three-year-old. But this morning, we are going to talk about something we do not and cannot know in its entirety. We're going to talk about God's wisdom. Now, I like to call God's wisdom a paradox. And just for clarity, a paradox is a seemingly contradictory statement that can be true. So the paradox of God's wisdom is that it's beyond our comprehension. It's infinite, it's unsearchable, yet somehow through very humble and simple means, God can communicate it to us. Now, before we jump into the text I want to read this morning, I want to do a thought experiment. And you all are going to have to bear with me because I'm a numbers guy. And... I don't want the word incomprehensible to be taken lightly. Now, it's impossible to perfectly illustrate something beyond our comprehension, so what I want to do is just stretch our minds to think about numbers on a scale in which you would not normally think. When I was in college, there was a little aside in one of my textbooks, and it made the claim. It said, did you know that whenever you shuffle a deck of cards, if it's a well-shuffled deck, the odds are overwhelming that you're creating an order of those cards that has never existed before? Now, I don't know 
even how to estimate how many decks of cards there are in the world. I don't even know how long cards have been around. I don't know how often they're shuffled. This seemed like a really bold claim. I doubted it at first, and I bet maybe some of you are doubting it as well. But let's take a look at the numbers. Now, many, maybe some of you have had to solve a problem in the past where you've been given a number of objects and you're asked how many ways you can order them. If you haven't, I'm going to tell you the answer. It's pretty easy. You take the number of objects and you just put an exclamation point behind it. <laughs> that exclamation point is called a factorial, and it means the product, which means multiply, of that number n and every positive whole number below it. That's not making sense to you. I have examples. Three factorial, it's simple. It's three times two times one. It equals six. Four factorial is four times three times two times one. It equals 24. So to find out how many different ways you could order a deck of cards, you need to do 52 factorial. So 52 times 51 times 50 times 49, all the way down to one. And it equals the number up on the screen. Think of that number as an eight with 67 zeros behind it. Now, we don't really have a grasp of how big that number was. If you did have a grasp of how big that number was, you would not doubt my textbook's claim about you creating a new order of cards every time you shuffled. So we're going to try to try to frame how big that number is. The world's fastest supercomputer is in China. It has reached speeds of 33.86 petaflops. I don't know if any of you know what that means, but it means this computer can do 33.86 quadrillion calculations every second. So let's say we want this supercomputer in its own processing mind to take an electronic deck of cards and put it in every possible order. And for the sake of our experiment, we're assuming one calculation by the supercomputer means putting the deck of cards in one new order without any repetitions. So if we take our first big number, the number of possible combinations, divide it by the number of calculations our supercomputer can do per second, we get the number of seconds it would take our supercomputer to complete its task. Think of that as a 24 with 50 zeros behind it. We don't usually think in large amounts of seconds. So let's turn that number into years. If we take the number of seconds it would take our supercomputer to do our task, divide it by the number of seconds in a year, and there are 31,550,600 seconds in a year if you adjust for leap year by making a year 365.25 days. <laughs> I checked it out. It's okay. And it equals that number. I still don't know what that number is called. Someone smarter than me probably does. But it's like a 75 with 42 zeros at the end of it still way beyond our comprehension. Now, this is the point in the service where I have a layup joke, where I can make a joke about somebody in here being this old. But I have gray hairs, and I don't like age jokes anymore. So let's say, <laughs> just for fun, just for sake of experience, because yes, I find this kind of stuff fun, let's say next, the next generation Steve Jobs comes around, and he thinks supercomputers are for everybody, not just for big science and government labs, not just for big universities, not just for one in every house, but he wants Every, all 7.4 billion people in the world to own a supercomputer on par with the world's fastest. So we all have one. And we all decide that this is the best use of our time and our supercomputing power. So we take the number of years it would take one supercomputer to do the task, divide it by 7.4 billion people. We all have one, and we're all dedicating our supercomputers to reordering a deck of cards in every possible order. It would still take that many years. Think of that as a 10 with 33 zeros. Now, we started with a really big number, uh, the number of possible combinations, and we reduced that number by multiple orders of magnitudes, by dividing it by the quadrillions, millions, billions, and we're still left with a number beyond what we can grasp. 
No, I've never asked God, but I'm sure he could complete our task in his own mind pretty simply. I don't do this thought experiment because I think it tests the limits of what God could do in his mind. I do this thought experiment because even something as simple as a deck of cards can push the levels of comprehension of our own mind. Now back to God's wisdom. The Bible tells us that God's wisdom is beyond our comprehension. In Isaiah 55, we read, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And in Psalm 147, verses four and five, we read, he determines the number of stars and calls them each by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. And one of my favorites is from a very modern translation of the Bible called The Message by Eugene Peterson. Peterson translates Paul's writing in Romans 11 by saying of God's deep wisdom, it's way over our heads. We'll never figure it out. <laughs> End of sermon. No, just kidding. Um, now, in addition to scripture, God's wisdom is evident in his creation. From the unfathomably large to the infinitesimally small to the <clears throat> amazing phenomena and incredibly complex balances in our world, it's clear to those who believe that our world was created by a God with wisdom far beyond what we can know. Now, God's wisdom is also part of his character. It's part of sound Christian theology. We worship an infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful, loving, just God. He has to be wise beyond what we can know. Theologian A.W. Tozer writes, the idea of God as infinitely wise is at the root of all truth. It is a belief necessary to the soundness of all other beliefs about God. Our moral sanity requires that we attribute to the maker and sustainer of the universe a wisdom entirely perfect. Now, I bet a lot of you are impressed that a guy like me can drop an A.W. Tozer quote on you. But my wife and four other couples who are coming today see right through me. They're part of my life group and they know it's just the last book we studied in our life group. I'm not trying to fool anybody up here. Now, if it seems to you like I'm rushing quickly over the topic of God's wisdom, you're right, I am. Someone with a lot more knowledge and a lot more ability could write a whole sermon series on the depths of God's wisdom. But for this morning, it's a necessary premise to the passage I wanna speak on. And I wanna speak on a passage from 1 Corinthians. Now, 1 Corinthians is an instructional letter written by Paul to the, to the early church in Corinth. Now, in 1 Corinthians 1, or 1 Corinthians 1, chapter 26, or sorry, verses 26 through 31, we read, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now this message gets at the paradox of God's wisdom. We learned from before that God's wisdom is beyond our comprehension, yet this passage tells us that God's, God's wisdom can be communicated through very simple means. Did God in his infinite wisdom think, maybe I can dumb down my message just enough so the brightest of the bright people on earth can get some grasp of who I am and then everyone else will have to rely on them? No, God doesn't think that way and faith can't work that way. We, as people, can't be saved by our faith in what smart people tell us. 
we as people are saved by our faith in Christ and our infinitely wise God can relate to us through a message simple enough to be understood even by young children, the gospel. No, I love this 1 Corinthians passage for many reasons. The leading reason is it's true. It's how God works. God can use the overlooked, the ill-equipped, and the unexpected. If you don't believe me, we have people on our staff from Rockford. <laughs> I can make that joke because I have really good friends from Rockford, okay? And trust me, they're used to it. They have pretty thick skin. But all kidding aside, I have nothing against Rockford. But I do want to look at an example from the Bible. I want to look at the book of 1 Samuel in the story of David. Now, David is often remembered as a man after God's own heart, as a fearless warrior, as an important king. Sure, we learn of some of his downfalls in Scripture, but he's regarded as a hero of the Bible. He even gets mentioned in Hebrews 11, which is kind of like a hall of fame of people of faith. But if we look at David's beginnings in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we'll pick up there where Saul is king of Israel. Saul has lost God's favor, and God tells the prophet Samuel to go to Bethlehem to anoint one of Jesse's sons as the next king. Now, if you're not familiar with the story, David is one of Jesse's sons. So the prophet Samuel heads to Bethlehem, and initially he doesn't tell everyone the true, the true reason of his visit. He says he wants to sacrifice, and he wants Jesse and his sons to come sacrifice with him. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem, invites Jesse and all of his sons to a sacrifice, and one by one, Jesse's sons pass in front of Samuel. And the first one must have been tall and strong and very capable looking, because Samuel thinks to himself, surely, this is the one the Lord is going to anoint as king. And God says, no, not him. And God tells Samuel, he doesn't judge by appearance. And one by one, all the sons who come pass in front of Samuel, and God tells Samuel, no, not him, no, not him, no, not him. And Samuel must have been a little bit confused. Everyone who came has now passed in front of him, and God has said, no, my chosen one is not here. So we pick up in 1 Samuel 16, verse 11, where Samuel asks Jesse, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. David wasn't even included. Samuel invites Jesse and all his sons, but David didn't get to go. Moreover, David is stuck tending the sheep, which is a really low job at the time. And it's subtle, but in the text you'll notice when Jesse's asked if he has another son, he doesn't even mention David by name. He just says, oh yeah, my youngest one's doing the grunt work. <clears throat> now, how many of you have ever felt like David? You felt, oh, Jim has. <laughs> Every day. You felt unfairly excluded. You felt overlooked despite your talents. And you felt like, really like no one is on your side. Because in David's case, if your family holds you in low regard, who else is there? But God used this overlooked, excluded, youngest son and made him a king. And quickly we learn of the amazing things that God does through David. Now, one quick point I want to make is that God doesn't only use people who are weak, lowly, unexpected. The point is that God can use anyone because it's God's work that matters and we need to be humble. God often uses the unexpected because it shows his might. Now, God could have had someone like Samson fight Goliath instead of David, and that sounds like it would actually be really cool, 
but it really wouldn't show God's might as much as having a lowly shepherd boy with a slingshot take down a fully armored giant who single-handedly was striking fear into an entire army. It's how God works. But moving on, what does it mean for us, for you and me, that God can use the foolish things of the world to shame the wise? I want you to leave here with three biblical instructions I see flow out of 1 Corinthians 1. Be humble, be confident, and be excited. But first, be humble. 1 Corinthians 1 exudes humility. I think it's funny how Paul is addressing the church in Corinth. It comes close to being insulting. Look at the words Paul uses. Paul is saying, hey, God can use things the world considers foolish, weak, lonely, despised, just like most of you guys. These verses tell us we should be humble because no matter who we are, it's God's work that matters. And the passage tells us if we're to do any boasting, it's to be about God. These verses also do a good job of keeping us humble. Now, what does it look like when pride and arrogance sneak into your heart? And we all have some measure of pride and arrogance in our hearts. It often starts by subtly looking down on other people. All of a sudden seeing yourself as more deserving, all of a sudden seeing yourself as better than other people. In the context of these verses, it's really hard to look down on other people. The people you're most likely to start looking down upon first are the very people these verses explicitly say that God uses. Now, we also learned from the verses the necessity of being humble to receive God's wisdom and his grace. I wanna look at verse 30 again. It reads, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Now, Christ is our wisdom and grace, according to the passage. Accepting Christ requires great humility. We like to feel like we earn what is ours. We like to feel like we deserve what we get because anything else would be charity. And it can be hard enough on our pride to take some, accept some help here and there. It can be downright devastating to our pride to have to accept charity. Well, the, the fact is that grace should devastate our pride. Accepting grace acknowledges there's nothing we can do to be reconciled to God. It's not saying that I need to be my very best and God's grace will just like sweep up the crumbs of where I messed up and make sure I'm okay. No, that's not, that's a Jesus plus mentality that the writers of scripture and the leaders here at Parkview make great efforts to dispel. Accepting grace requires having the humility to say, there's nothing I can do. God in his redemptive work did 100% of the reconciliation, and moreover, it is and was completely undeserved. It's not easy to show such humility, but these verses tell us to be humble. Second, be confident. I hope you don't think humility and confidence are in conflict. I think these words are sometimes considered opposites, and that's not true. The opposite of humility would be arrogance. The opposite of confidence would be timidity. In 2 Timothy 1.7, Paul has something to say about timidity. He writes, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Now, personally, I'm glad so many Christians I know have confidence. It would be difficult to do any work for the gospel without it. Of course, the most important characteristic of our confidence is its source. And these verses tell us Christ should be the source of our confidence. In very clear language, the passage lets us know that confidence in anything else will be shamed. Now, confidence in Christ has some profoundly practical life applications. 
Mainly, confidence in Christ gives us our identity. Now, I'm not big into self-help resources, whatever form they may take, but I do have to give many self-help messages credit for singling out the importance of identity. Self-help guru Tony Robbins, in a blog post titled The Meaning of Life, Finding Your True Identity, writes, Among our most important beliefs are those we hold about who we are. People have enormous capabilities beyond what's thought to be possible. The power to tap into our tremendous potential comes from our identity, how we define ourselves, and what we believe we can achieve. Identity is the strongest force in human personality. We all have a deep and abiding need to remain consistent with how we define ourselves. Now, Tony is not wrong. Identity is extremely important. He is, of course, missing the source of a true identity, and you don't have to look far these days to find people who are looking for their identities in really strange places. Now, I hope in this room that our identities aren't tied to a job we could lose. They aren't tied to a relationship that could end, an achievement that will be forgotten, a goal that once reached that will leave you feeling empty, a political party that could lose an election, or anything else that could let us down. Surely all these things can shape our identities, but I hope our identities are rooted in Christ. Now, when God is the source of your confidence and the root of your identity, an amazing thing can happen. You can start feeling confident in all aspects of your life. You can feel confident because you know who you are. You can feel confident because you know you are loved. And you can be confident because you know, regardless of your abilities or inabilities, that God can use you to do important work. We should be confident. Third, be excited. I had a hard time choosing a word for this point. I went back and forth from something like hope and purpose. But I thought when I wake up in the morning feeling a sense of hope and a sense of purpose, it makes me feel excited. You know, the prerequisites God has for using someone do not exclude the sinner, the lowly, the weak, the despised, or people who feel like they don't exist. And for people like us, that should be exciting. Now, I've always wanted to make a jam-packed stadium erupt into wild cheers, but I'm thinking my time has passed and I'm never actually going to get to do that. Unfortunately, in high school and college, I was a distance runner, so I'm used to running around mostly empty stadiums where I can pick out my parents cheering for me. <laughs> my parents are here, by the way, Paul and Susie. You should say hi to them. But anyway, but anyway, how important would it make you feel if... People love to come watch you do what you do, and every time you did it well, they stood up on their feet and cheered like crazy people. Well, we can't all be famous athletes or rock stars, but we should not underestimate the importance of the work God calls us to do. Say it again. God calls us to do very important work in people's lives. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells three consecutive parables about finding a lost thing. First, it's one lost sheep out of 100. Then it's one lost coin out of 10. And then it's one lost son out of two. Now, at the end of each story, when the lost is found, there's great rejoicing. And at the end of the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, Jesus adds to the rejoicing in the story by telling of the rejoicing in heaven when a single sinner repents. Now imagine what making all of heaven rejoice would look like. That would be better than a full stadium or even a televised audience. Now we don't get to hear it now, but we will get to join in on it someday. I want you to think of all the people who have lived, who are living, or who will ever live. And remember that God loves us all deeply as individuals, like only an infinitely wise God can. 
Now you and me, when we think about the task of reaching humanity for Christ, inevitably, we think more in numbers, in terms of, in, in terms of numbers rather than individuals. And that's okay, it's our, that's how the way our human minds have to process a big task. But God doesn't think in terms of numbers like that. These passages tell us that God rejoices with every single one of his lost sheep who are found. Now, what does that mean for the work God calls us to do? It means it doesn't matter what scale you're working on. It doesn't matter if you're being an example to one person or if you're teaching to millions. It doesn't matter if you're communicating the very most basic principles of Jesus or if you're talking high levels of theology. God calls us all to do work that we can do and he considers it very important. And that should make us feel excited. Now, I hope your life doesn't feel boring. Inevitably, we all have phases or parts of our lives that are less exciting than other phases of parts, and we all have things we have to do that aren't necessarily fun. But I don't think God calls us into a life of boredom. Now, I'm going to go on a little rant, just as a warning. Um, Parkview is deep in the suburbs. I'm guessing a lot of you here live in the suburbs. A pet peeve of mine is how the suburban life can be portrayed in media. It's painted as this vanilla and repetitious world of minivans where everyone has to fit the same mold. And, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. Where everyone has to fit the same mold. And deep down, everyone who lives in the suburbs must suffer from having a boring life and a lack of purpose. Well, personally, that's not been my experience at all. Sure, downtown Wheaton might close down at 8 o'clock, but if you step inside my house, <laughs> life is exciting. It may seem to you like I live in a boring neighborhood, but our lives are far from benign. My family is constantly dealing with real life issues of relationships, responsibilities, jobs, sacrifices, joys, pains, mistakes, fatigue, anxiety, and it's serious business. And what makes my family's life the most exciting are the people God has put in it. The people God's put in our life are, <clears throat> are interesting and unique, and I pray that God is using me in a real way to impact them. If your life is feeling boring, my advice to you is find a way to care about somebody. Find a way to invest in someone. <coughs> Befriend somebody. Join a ministry. And if this is seeming like a daunting task, earnestly pray and ask God about it. Ask him for guidance. Ask him for leading and conviction. And, you know, it's not going to be easy. It's going to push you outside of your comfort zone, but it's going to be exciting. Now, to bring it all back around, God's wisdom is a paradox it is beyond our comprehension, yet readily attainable to us through the work of Christ. God has the ability to use any of us to do his work. If you're successful, smart, capable, likable, determined, or if you aren't, it's God's work that matters, which means that we need to humble ourselves. Now, God's wisdom is greater than any wisdom here on earth, and that should give us immense confidence. If you put it together, there is an infinitely wise and all-powerful God who for some reason beyond my comprehension, chooses to do radical and significant work through us. And that should be exciting. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we just thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for the ways that you communicate your wisdom to us. And we thank you for the purpose that you give us in lives. We thank you that you find ways to use us despite our shortcomings and you find ways to show your might through us. We just ask that you be with us as we go this week. In your name we pray, amen. There's power in the greatness of God's love. It's vastness, it's bigness, it's incredibleness. 
Living a life that is filled with the bigness of God is a very, very powerful life. It's an exciting life. And so I'm wondering if we could be bold enough this week to pray that prayer that Tim just talked about, to ask God, God, what, what can I do in light of your bigness, in light of the massive way in which you have loved me, what can I do to repay, to show that love to the world around me? Will you thank Tim again? His parents are over here somewhere. How did he do? Pretty good, yeah? Yeah, nice job. All right. So let's pray together. Father, as your church leaves this building today, will you infuse us? Will you remind us? Will you not ever let us forget of your bigness and the incomparable riches of your love for us? Will you give us the boldness and the courage to pray? Pray for wisdom and direction that we would live a life that is filled with your bigness and that our lives would be exciting because of the way you empowered each of us. So we thank you. We thank you for your love, your grace, and your mercy. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Hey, there'd be folks down here that would love to pray with you. Otherwise, have a great, great week.